Okay, so we're, we're speaking uh, here um, with Bonita Roy and Jonathan Rosen, um, and we're talking about Bonita's new, let's say, it seems like a manifesto to me on, on some level, even though that's a rather um, dramatic way of putting it. Uh, but we are living in dramatic times, and the article uh, for Emerge is called Corona-19, A Tale of Two Systems. Bonita, uh, you wrote this article um, uh, proposing um, that we, uh, you had six steps towards um, creating a new kind of prosperity, okay, in light of the crisis that, that, that's going on and systems collapse and what can, can sort of come next. Um, and one of them was expand our political economic imagination, design a global commons in service to life, experience the deeper sources of connection, expand circles of trust and concern, reinvent education for the future and pivot to digital naturalism. So that's a lot of stuff. Um, and, uh, and you also divide, you sort of, uh, you're, you're dividing um, the current systems of the world into two systems, two worlds. So in a way we're living in two worlds and, and one world is sort of doomed and the other world has some kind of possibility. So is that enough for you to, to work and make kind of introduce uh, um, your vision, Bonita? Yeah, I think we should back up. And um, yeah, so that was interesting. So I think that reflected like how the article might have impacted you. But I want, I want to start with something Jonathan said when he asked me to uh, make a contribution on Corona. And I think it, it, you said it, like it's a lot of stuff. And Jonathan said, why is this list important? Like, you know, there's all kinds of lists people put up and, and I really appreciated that feedback because I feel the same way. Like, why these five things? Why not those five things? Or why these? And so maybe uh, we can backtrack and uh, kind of uh, frame it in. Uh, jo Jonathan was looking at the drafts and the process and his invitation uh, yeah, so maybe we can we can start start with that. I'll, I'll just briefly speak to that. So, I mean, I run a charity in London called Perspectiva, um, and we was co-founded with Thomas Bjorkman, who some of your uh, viewers will know. And we, you know, three or four years ago, began to realize that if you want to understand complex systems, you need to also bring in the soul somehow. And that part of the problem with a lot of thinking was that you could have a sort of view of systems thinking and economic change and political change on the one hand, and you also had people talking about personal transformation and spiritual growth on the other, and they were not very often talking to each other. Um, there were communities where they were, but even in those conversations, it wasn't clear how, how productive and creative the conversations were. Uh, there was a sense in which people had their natural biases. Either they want to speak about all the things we should do to the economic model, or they were more inclined to talk about stages of human spiritual maturation and, and the kinds of practices we should do to get there. And Perspectiva was founded partly to make sense of that connection and, and realize that it's a long-term conversation. We call ourselves an urgent 100-year project for that reason, because we recognize that you know, systems are complex enough as in any given case. Then you have multiple systems interlocking as we do at the moment. But you also have the kind of interiority of the systems. Um, and so when you bring all those things together, you get a very deliciously complex, but often hard to communicate set of insights and ideas. Mm -hmm. And there aren't 
there aren't that many people who can sort of play at that level, if you like. Bonita is certainly one of them. Uh, Zachary Stein, whom we uh, asked to write for us as well, was another. And um, they appear on the Emerge website because Emerge is part of Perspectiva. Um, we were part of the creation of it, and over time we've taken more and more responsibility towards it. Um, in due course, the distinction is basically that Emerge is meant to be relatively accessible. Emerge is, is designed to be reaching a large audience. Mm. Whereas Perspectiva is maybe a little bit more challenging, precise, um, intellectually exacting. And so they, in an ideal world, we get these pieces pitched and refined and edited so they can reach many people. But then we talk further as we are here and get drilled down in a bit more depth and clarity about what's being said. Right. Because one of the things that Bonita mentions, I think, uh, often is the danger of, let's say, very reductive thinking. And I guess the danger of a manifesto, in a sense, and I'm calling it that, um, you didn't call it that, but uh, it does have a, um, let's say, a vision to it. Um, one of the dangers is, is this kind of reduc reductionism. So I wonder if we're, we're living in a time where, you know, there is the danger of a very, very quick, quick, we're living in a time that's very urgent on, on one hand, and, an, and at a time that requires very careful, careful thought at the other. And maybe that's the that's the line or that's the, the tension. Yeah, so um, I'm gonna call it a holofesto. Okay. So it works like a manifesto, but it has a holistic kind of uh, view instead of uh, a reductive view. So if you wanna keep calling it something, we can call it a holofesto. Um, so here's where we need to be careful. There is reductionism, that's like scientific reductionism. So we abstract from experience down to concepts, and then we can manipulate the concepts as if they stand in for the whole. That's one thing. Mm -hmm. Now the postmodern systemic mind moves away from that kind of reductionism toward what we would call synthetic systems making. So larger and larger systems, more and more points to contextualize, you know, transdisciplinary kind of integrations and syntheses. And these build hyperobjects, right? Mm. So it's not reductionist, but it has its own liability. There's no, there's no pivot point in which to act. You can't uh, right. get in there, okay? That's, that's what so, I wanted to, to, to actually bring up is like you mentioned uh, in your email that you wanted this stuff to be actionable. Hmm. Yeah. So then what's the third way, right? If we don't want to build hyper objects and, and I'm not saying all the first two are not necessary. I'm saying that they each give us valuable insight into what we're dealing with. But there's this third way, and this third way has is it's a move into the felt sense, a move into the body, a move into like getting real with what is your despair or what is uh, what is possible from here. Like what is simply possible from here. And um, as as Jonathan knows, I went through this process with this article because first it was big and synthetic and I hated it because it was just a clever use of your mind in a certain way. Mm. 
So what is being asked of me? What is being asked of me at this point in history? You know, what, and from there, and this article emerges. And so, uh, for example, I'll just give you uh, uh, how it's, uh, how it can play out. After I wrote the article, I, I was in the uh, process of doing these community calls um, uh, with various different groups for uh, a week, once a week for three weeks. And in this one group, someone said, oh, I'm working with so-and-so and we're building uh, blockchain uh, technology to recreate the whole um U.S. economy, and you know he's a very bright person. And then he said, "But the problem, of course, is only you know not even twenty percent of, of people will actually get it. They're too stupid." And I said, "We don't need sophisticated financial instruments. We need simple financial instruments that everyone can understand, that are guaranteed to work for them." You see the difference? Now it took me a long time. Actually, not until I wrote this article did even I get it because I was like chasing like more and more complexity and this and that. And when I realized that we could just have a simple funny, everyone understands how to do this, that didn't have to take down the whole economy. I thought, oh, my God, what if I thought more like this? Maybe maybe there's a lot hidden in plain sight, a lot of potential in plain sight. But this is a different kind of thinking. And I don't, you know, want to go meta on the thinking. One of your audience will. There's a whole nother, you know, PhD in that. But this is like, for me, uh, uh, what what the invitation is that Jonathan is looking for. And like Zach does the same. He does a similar thing. But, you know, it's orthogonal to, like he said, I think, on your video, I didn't even propose anything. You know, I wasn't even arguing for anything. He... He, mm. he took something from inside of himself and put it in the context of this. And so uh, this is, I think, what Jonathan has its, a nose for. Uh, but, uh, you know, anyway. Something how- like imaginal is the word that comes to mind. Uh, or or um, this is a word I, I got from, from John Verveke. He talks the difference between imagination, just imagining all these things and kind of going into a fantasy of how the world could be, whereas actual concrete, imaginal, uh, I think that's what Zach was doing. He was putting forth imaginal uh, structures that that we, that we could work with rather than, let's say, a, a research paper or something like that. Did you want to respond, Jonathan? Yeah, sure. So there's a lot going on, and uh, it's fascinating to hear the, the process angle on what's being said before we get delving into you know, the, the material of it, the substance of it. Um, I've been going through a little bit of a trip myself for the last few weeks because I've encountered partly through Bonita's essay where she used the word originary. Mm. She used this word originary. I thought she'd made a typo, right? Which is, a, which is kind of embarrassing, but an embarrassment I'm happy to own up to. Um, originary is actually a term from Jean Gebser, and it's a really important notion. Um, and it's usefully juxtaposed with imaginary. Uh, and you've mentioned the imaginal, Andrew. So to sort of frame these different notions, uh, the imaginary is often the sort of the, the kind of like the inside of the whole world. The imaginary is something like how we experience um, culture writ large 
um, and how it, it circumscribes our notion of what's normal. The imaginary is that which it's, it's several layers of abstraction beyond, uh, you know, your, your immediate experience and your culture. It's, a, it's kind of a holding pattern for subjective and intersubjective experience. And there are ways of describing it. I think Charles Taylor calls it uh, the widest possible grasp of our whole predicament, right? So that's imaginary. And a lot of people have been speaking recently about the need for a new social imaginary because the imaginary we have is basically a consumerist, late capitalist, world falling apart imaginary. And yeah. maybe we can do better, right? That's one of the ideas out there. But yeah. there's a richer, deeper, perhaps more profound notion which is connected with the evolution of consciousness, which is sort of saying, look, these imaginaries will either be given unto us by processes of history, mostly material processes, like what's happening to land, what's happening with technology, what's happening with population movements. They will give rise to subjective and intersubjective experience, right? Um, and that keeps on happening. And so we get to a point now where suddenly we become aware, hang on, we're caught in this thing called the imaginary. What's going on? Can we change it? Are we, are we subject to it? Is there a sense mm. in which we can build our own imaginary? Yeah. That's a highly non-trivial process because it's like you know, a spider web being reconstructed after it's broken, broken down. You're, you're, you're coming out of something kind of natural and process-driven and claiming that you can, through a sort of effort of will, recreate it. And right. it's highly questionable that we can, which is mm. where the idea of the originary becomes interesting. Because in effect, you're saying, look, look more deeply at those processes, follow them back to where they started. Look at the origin, right? And this is where it gets deep, which is, you know, what kind of origin? Well, mathematical origin, certainly. Mathematical becoming physical, becoming chemical, becoming biological, becoming evolution, becoming psychological, becoming spiritual. But arguably, right at the beginning, it was numinous. Yeah. Um, this is yeah, since it's our theological water, but the whole idea of the origin, the origin living on, Gebser's famous book is called The Ever-Present Origin, and I'm still grappling yeah. with Gebser. I don't want to give any sort of false authority yeah. here, but, but I'm excited by his work because it tallies with a lot of other thinkers. Mark Vernon, who's also an associate of Perspectiva, has done great work in bringing, bringing Owen Barfield to public attention. Yeah. There's something different about participatory knowing, but as Bonnie, I think, was alluding to earlier, getting away from a way of knowing that is sort of abstract and sort of about mental models and getting back into the world, rediscovering your original tacit understanding of things and no longer in a naive way, recognizing that they're situated within these cultural contexts, these imaginal contexts, but no longer being as subject to them, being able to somehow get back to, you know, it's like in the Zen tradition, they speak of before enlightenment, carrying water, chopping wood, yeah. after enlightenment, carrying water, chopping wood. So the originary for me, this notion is quite a profound one. It's, it's something like saying there is a challenge with our social imaginary, but the essence of the challenge is that we have to find a way to rediscover the originary, the sort of origin of this process of creation and recreation that we're caught up in, yeah. and now become conscious agents of that in some way. And how? We don't know. But that's where we are, I think. That's wonderful. And before you, you speak on that, Bonita, I remember in your article, you mentioned uh, something about how you compared sort of the uh, project of going to the moon, right? As this is something that the American ego felt like it needed to do to go <laughs> to the moon, like land on the moon, right? Uh, to, 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 to define itself, to be, to be something. 
Whereas, whereas you, you were saying that our task right now, and this is just putting simply what, what Jonathan say, is saying about the originary, is to just step on the earth. Like that's the more, more difficult task um, that we have to do. Does that, does that ring true? Is that, is that a good segue to yeah. what Jonathan was saying? Yeah. So, um, you know, um, I don't, I really, I wasn't, I wasn't, um, critiquing the moonshot. Yeah. Sorry. Um, I, which, I was, which, that was my critique. Yeah. Yeah. Um, not yours. Excuse me. You know, it's interesting because I linked that speech and many people emailed me and they were blown away. Like they're young people who never see leaders talk like that. So whether you think it, you know, whatever your your retrospective historical critique on those times is, yeah. that's not how it was playing out at the time. So, um, uh, yeah, but now it's a different, you know, it's, it's a different uh, need. It's a different calling. It's a different um, uh, um, aspiration, let's say. It's, you know... Um, and for me, like part of what I, I said in the last part about digital naturalism is um, a lot of for me, a lot of is that a lot of what we need to do is hidden in plain sight. But our way of thinking about uh, intelligence and development means that everything in the future and more complexity is always is progress, represents progress. Uh, this is not surprising because we live in a competitive growth economy based on information. So we escalate the complexity of information um, regardless of whether it's in the right direction. So we don't really, in general, this is true in organizations as well as individuals, in general, we don't create organizations that are committed to a task. In the past, organizations would commit to a task, they'd build something and then they would, they would die out. Now we create organizations that are committed to the, the life, lifelong profit in, of the organization. The, the, doesn't matter what the task is. Mm -hmm. So very few people get really clean on what's the task? What are we trying to do? You know, can, and, and so the moonshot's perfect. It's very clear we're going to the moon. All the learnings and all the other things are inside that commitment and that goal. Mm. So, um, and of so we course, need that kind of. Um, you're saying we need that kind of direction, that kind of intense, you know, direction. Um, Even that 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 sounds like a, a, a grand narrative that we need, though. You know, going to the moon is a big project, right? Um, so I'm yeah. just I'm saying there's kind of a, a paradox and uh, what you're saying is that we don't we don't want to be too grandiose about, about our project, but it has to be a grand project. So I have a thought. Yeah, if I may. Um, it reminds me of a famous distinction by the the well, he's a, he teaches at the Harvard Kennedy School called uh, Ron Highfights. And he distinguishes, distinguishes between um, technical problems and adaptive pro problems, or technical challenges and adaptive challenges, to be precise. And he says that so much of leadership makes the mistake of treating adaptive challenges as technical problems. 
that most leadership errors stem from that mistake. And um, I know this would not apply to Bonnie, but it's an interesting uh, juxtaposition. When you think of the moonshot, it's true that that rallied a lot of attention and imagination and excitement. The earth became somehow object rather than subject because we could escape from it. And then we could look down on it and see how beautiful it was. And that's a huge achievement. So it's not simply technical, but it's also true that the problem of how to get to the moon is technical in nature. Whereas the problem of how do you design uh, governance structures and viable economies for roughly 8 billion people on an ecologically compromised and technologically imperious world. That's not a technical problem. That's an adaptive challenge at scale. And so while we do need a new moonshot in spirit, it will have to be a very different kind of endeavor. It's an endeavor in which we're thoroughly implicated, not as bystanders, but as participants. Mm -hmm. So maybe you could speak to that, uh, Bonnie. Yeah. About so, what principles and what act, what should we do? Again, as you say, you wanted this to be very yeah. action-based. So people are always, there's been a lot of talk, a lot of podcasts. Yeah. What, so, what should the actions be? Sorry. To, yeah, no, I think that, that was beautiful. So I completely agree with what Jonathan said, and I'm actually learning on really rich perspectives on this. So I'm going to call it uh, one-stop shopping. You see, the, the way, the difference between the moonshot and the way we're working now is the way we're working now is very fractionalized, right? So this group, this group of the voting population wants free education. This group wants this. This group wants that. This group wants that. And so it's all, there's no one that holds a, a vision. There's no, there's no, so the moonshot created alignment. It created new economic opportunity. It created the need for a lot of growth in the computers, you know, computer uh, sector, which was starting up, but not really, didn't really have a challenge. It created this, um, uh, it rearranged the geosocial world uh, big time. It created the opportunity for GPS, all these things. It also created a great opportunity for women at the time, which is underreported. So it's like one-stop shopping. What is a moonshot that naturally aggregates or creates holistic interdependencies so you get more, you know, more bang for your buck? So it's, to me, that was like, so what are the, what are the, I think I started with 12, some of them are enfolded in others. What are the, what could be something like that? And so that's how we come with the six. So, for example, if you, and I tried to take things that were doable and emerging already. So the notion of a citizen's currency mm. is very much embedded in a lot of work that people are doing with digital currency, but also with PayPal. I mean, when PayPal came online, it was extraordinary because up until then, the SEC, the Security and Exchange Committee, would have shut them down without a doubt because you couldn't build your own kind of currency thing. It wasn't a bank per se. These imaginaries, these, these, these uh, you know, expansion of our economic imagination, there's lots in the system already. But 
as I said earlier, it's like, what is the easiest one? What is the low hanging fruit that we could just do today? Now, coronavirus has given us an opportunity to remind people that they're interested now in their food chain. And it'd be easy. In fact, uh, some of us have been researching apps. There's really cool apps to find, you know, to watch your food chain and have that currency be off the um, value-added investment um, interest currency. And that would be UBI, would be a better type of UBI because it would not be subject to the extractive uh, financial instruments in the main economy. So can we just move the needle there? Now, all of a sudden, what happens? A lot happens. If you could get your, let's say, healthcare and food from this currency, and then let's say you keep rent and housing and mortgages on the other currency, and then your and then your landlord tells you to you know you, you can't pay your rent. Your landlord says get out, or don't pay your rent or get out. Well, you say, well, I'll get out. Like you're so much more fluid now. So the rental charge, the, all the all the uh, pressure will now be on renters. They would be competing with themselves. And uh, there's a lot of young people who like to go back into rural areas and build farms, but they can't because they'll starve to death. Basically, it takes like 10 years. But if you had your health care and your food paid for, then you'd get rural revitalization. If you had this um, local currency for health care, you could get a lot of more health care services like uh, um, like. Uh, they do in, um, I think, Amsterdam, there's something that's, it's not Morningstar, but um, <clears throat> where you have um, local knowledge for certain kind of healthcare outside of the insurance system. Um, like, uh, uh, you know, chiropractic started that way, um, um, homeopathic started that way. Um, I When I got, um, it, it, so... So just to show you how, how big a deal this is, when I um, left my job and lost my health care, I got a very bad injury in my arm. I needed like 120 internal stitches and 80 external stitches, antibiotics, and an x-ray. But I didn't have health insurance, so I didn't, I didn't get a surgeon. I got a medical technician who'd done two tours in Iraq. He did a beautiful job and it cost me $1,900. That's it. That's the true cost of healthcare. A certain mm -hmm. amount of um, artisan vocational knowledge and X amount of hours in, 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 a, in, a, you know, in a room, in an office. So, but this, won't ha this can't happen when it's run on the extractive uh, system because you get, you know, you get the taxes, you get the interest, you get the loans, you get the insurance companies. All of this inflates the cost of health insurance. So our government, for example, in the U.S., we want universal health care, but we're not going to pay the health care workers. We're going to pay the insurers. So universal health care under the existing system means universal raping of your labor into insurance profits. So that just one move can start to peel away, it re-incentivizes just natural human activity in the way we want. So that's why it's not just all of these, I think, are multiple, have multiple leverages 
uh, leverage points and uh, support each other. So maybe we could uh, just do the other ones in a little bit. Yeah, that's great. Um, so, so basically, once people have a baseline of survival, uh-huh, without the fear of you know being hungry, uh, and if we diversified the, um, if we diversified money so that or value or into something called a citizen's currency, then the, you you were suggesting that the, the both both systems like we would have different systems of money, different kinds of currencies of systems, and and that would that would this diversification would allow us to be more natural in our in our activities. I think the diversification itself would enable us to take a look at the the, the extractive economy that we have, the central banking mm-hmm. economy. Yeah. And so I wouldn't. So that's also another advantage. Do this, and now you can see: Do we need this? And maybe there are advantages. You know, it gives. So it's like uh, it's different than becoming more and more complex and trying to see how I'm going to solve everything at once. It's like, mm. this is doable. It's right in front of our face. I even talked about like people having reports, quarterly reports of the, where the money's going. Farmers needed it here. We re, th- These farmers didn't need it. You know, and you could start to see currency as this network effect. Mm. Wow. So, so I, I, uh, I see promise in that idea, but I also see lots of potential qualms. And I'm sure Bonnie herself, you know, were someone else to propose these ideas, she would be quick to see that there are perspectives that need to be brought to bear. Um, you know, for example, uh, is this happening in one country alone? And if it is, um, that creates certain, even greater immigration pressures on that country. Uh, it also will it will impact on um, well, is, it, is, is it okay for the central government to allow, in effect, multiple money supplies? What will that mean for things like inflation and uh, interest rates on mortgages and so forth? Um, I'm not sort of a bona fide economist, although I've spent enough time reading economics books. But I know that there are, are economists who would be interesting, you know, interesting to ask about these things. This is quite an interesting conversation in the sense that Economics is too important to be left to just the economists on the one hand. But it's also true that once you get an idea like, here's an app for a new uh, idea of a currency, and we can tailor make it to parts of some parts of the economy which are essential and keep it out of the parts of the economy which are about revenue extraction and make interest and debt and all the rest of it. Now, I think maybe, I mean, I'm very open to it, but I'm also keen to stress that we don't really know so this is the difference between Bonnie having an interesting idea, let's explore it, let's see what it looks like. But that's very different from saying, here's a solution. It's much more about saying, here's a different way of thinking about money and technology and human need and their beneficent combination. Uh, let's look into why we don't do that and whether we can actually build it ourselves. But equally, while you're doing that, you might find there's some killer counter-argument that says, sorry, you just can't do that. And I don't yeah. know what it is. But I'm just saying we should be open to that. No, I agree. And I think the call, really, the next step call is, can we start communities of practices that are working aligned in in this one or something like this, right, you know? Right. And, but so this is a, so uh, 
but I really like the fact that these questions are asked immediately. So I call it a citizen's currency because when I work it out, it, the first step has to be bounded by the nation state. It gets crazy. Uh, so I've worked that out. So I call it a citizen's currency. So it would be limited at first because then there would have to be some changes. Um, but the demand inside the, the um um, nation would would cause smart changes. So that's that's clear. And then there would have to be uh, certain subsidies and trade agreements that that um, that enable the countries that want to try this to uh, do this without disrupting everything. So that's why it's called a citizen's currency. And for those people working on blockchain, etc., it's actually a um, uh, suggestion that they work at that scale and not at the scale of the internet, for example, which most people are working. So this is an interesting thing. It's less disruptive. Also, in terms of immigration, um, I've been thinking about it as a natural instrument to um, preserve and improve the um, immigration flows of farm workers. So it doesn't solve all of immigration, obviously, um, but um, these are ways in which you can take one simple idea and start to weave in some things like you just discussed that are important. Um, but I do see it as um, bounded, unless somebody can think outside the box. I just see that um, it would require... But then there's that there there's the interest in having a little more... Kind of, kind of stepping back to a little more sense of nationhood already. So some of these things might be might be timely. Right. Mm. I mean, for my part, I don't doubt that some version of a citizen's currency, um, and and the citizen, you know, could be citizen of the world potentially. But I can see why there would be good design reasons for beginning uh, more locally. Um, I also can hear people who are outraged because somehow for them it's almost a sacred notion that one works for one's own keep. Uh, and then I can see the critiques of that saying, well, that's all very well in principle, but we live in these thoroughly interconnected, highly urbanized worlds where it's just not that easy and often you starve if you try. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a complex picture. And I suppose my question back to you is when we come up with an idea like this or a variation of it, and simultaneously, you have other ideas that you gave in your list. Um, and we know there are plenty of other ideas out there. There's a question of orientation. Like, where do you start the thinking process? Um, because one of the things that's been interesting about COVID and the pandemic is some people have begun to realize, okay, where do we start? So I noticed, for example, uh, that in, in ethical theory, they, they, there are sort of main schools of or the Kantian or deontological view that certain things are good or bad in and of themselves. So saving life is a kind of preeminent uh, necessity. But then you have a more consequential view, which is something like, well, um, we can't save all the lives. And, and if we do try and save all the lives, then we'll damage lots of other things. And so we let's do the trade-offs. And that's another way of thinking. Then you have something like virtue theory, which is more about what are the inherent qualities of human character that we need to cultivate at this moment, care and kindness and, um, reciprocity and things like this. Um, now those things are all swirling around and I noticed in my own reaction that my inner Kantian became sort of heightened. When the, the pandemic broke, I was thinking first save all the lives. So that was my very strong primal instinct. Like just 
keep people inside, figure out what's going on, um, and let's see. Like, but let's at least now that we understand, if you know what exponential exponential functions look like, you can see that this could kill a lot of people very fast, and every day counts. And therefore, begin. I took my my children out of school early against government advice because I sensed this. Basically, my my sense was first save all the lives, right? I only mention that because in the more in a broader sense, when you're thinking of redesigning society or the economy at a you know, potentially global scale, and you may have to start locally because, as you said, Andrew, and as Bonnie's emphasizing, it's all very well to have transcendental design, but you've got to do something the next day, and we need to start somewhere too. So there's this trade-off between knowing that the context is plural and planetary, but recognizing that action is often personal and specific and local. Um, and in that context, what are the lodestars and, and touchstones? Well, health is certainly one of them. You know, um, what does it mean to design an economy that's about health broadly conceived? Um, and I know there are people who are thinking about that. Nora Bateson's one of them. Um, and there's also the question of education, because it, as, Zach, as Zach argued in his compelling piece, there's a lot going on educationally at the moment. You know, it's not just that kids are not in school. I know as a parent, I'm having to teach myself how to be a functional intermediary between the school's demands and the child's capabilities and desires. And that's not easy. It's a steep learning curve for all of us. And then there's the bigger question of, you know, learning as a, as a species-wide challenge to make sense of civilization and its purposes. And for that, you've got to think, well, if it's not indefinite, indefinite economic growth, if we're not just trying to get richer and assuming it will somehow trickle down, what are we doing? Um, and that's where I'm curious to ask Bonnie about the list because it's like, okay, I can see that these are all interesting things to do, but what is their underlying dynamic? What are they, are, are they, are they aimed at the increase of love or well-being or what is it? You know, what, you know, how do you orient yourself in that regard? Yeah, so a couple of comments. Uh, hopefully I remember them all. Excellent questions. So the first one is, yes, save all the lives. Uh, what's the trade-off that, that we're faced with, though? Say, save all the lives or ruin the economy? I mean, those, those, that's not very aspirational. How about save all the lives or build the world we want to see? Ah, now it becomes very interesting. Now there's... Uh, you know, you move from Kant to, to something like a Kierkegaardian right. imperative. It's, also, it's not Gideon uh, Batty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the notion of saving lives then becomes at once uh, maybe more transcendental, but more primitive, mm. right? Uh, you know, people will, yeah. So, so, but that we don't have that, right? We don't have that. Save the lives or, you know, save the economy. Um, and, um, but we do have it, save lives, save the economy, or take the saving of the lives um, response to look at something new. This is actually the third wave that's been coming out in this thing, you know? I'm sure that that's not what people uh, uh, really wanted to do. So, uh, so that's, that's one thing. Um, the other thing is that you asked about um, healthcare. And this is why, um, you know, the, the, the interactive dynamics of the six are important because um, you, what, healthcare depends a lot upon education. I think we should uh, teach 
you know, we if you live on a farm and you have a vet that you like uh, and you have a lot of animals, you basically do a lot of healthcare yourself, mm-hmm. like a lot that, you know, um, it's not that hard. Uh, but most people don't know anything about their bodies or their immune system or can't even Google and understand anything. They don't know how to take care of themselves. They don't know how to eat. All of this inflates, you know, this big systemic need for this big behemoth type of healthcare. This is true in all Western cultures. It's beginning to be more true in the Eastern cultures. So if you had more education around healthy care, um, then you could have more distributed nodes for caring. And um, so that's one thing. And I'll get back to education. But the connection piece really helps healthcare. Because the problem is we're not connected to how we are human, how our health is part of the living world. We're not, we don't, we're not connected to, you know, how we do our forestry is part of our healthcare system. You know, how we, what the decisions we make on land use is part of our healthcare system. The decisions we make in animal husbandry, which is why we have swine flu, avian flu, and coronavirus is part of our health insurance, uh, healthcare. Mm -hmm. So we need, to cultivate this sense of originary connection, that itself solves a lot. You know, we're not even connected to our bodies, you know, like uh, the comorbidities around diabetes and, and, and COVID-19 are huge, right? So, and diabetes is much more, uh, uh, is a much larger and more dangerous pandemic because the young kids, I mean, it's just infecting all the global for long-term. So, um, so it's, 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 uh, so the, so, so the connection piece works with the educate, uh, healthcare, education with, with healthcare, but you also said, you know, I'm not into, um, giving people, young people, basic income and free, free college. And so part of the education piece, which I know is a very big piece because you and I are working on it is to have, um, um, work study college credits. So that just like, uh, you know, the GI Bill and you and those credits would come from working in education, healthcare, environment, things like hospice and farm and food. So now you have this like perfect circle. And so then when people go to college and it, this is proven to be true, they're um, more respectful. They're more informed of what what college means or what college can be. Mm. And so I would ter- I would stop says here ago. I, I'll never run for office in this country. I would stop subsidizing all higher education and, um, really? and use, use that subsidy and, and let people who have the money go because basically let them go and try to preserve the world that makes them rich. That's what education does. It teaches you how to preserve the world for rich people. I would use that money instead to, uh, to design these work, these, uh, from, I think it starts in my, my, uh, my project that starts from 16 to 18 years old, you start to have avocational support for working in the society. And right. then you can get work uh, credits for going to higher education, whatever that may look like at that time. So a lot of this stuff is like, if, if, if we had enough conversations, you could see they're all deeply embedded right. in, in, in each other. 
I'm absolutely sure of that having not just having read it, but knowing of your other work, you know, also just knowing of the the kinds of conundrum that are faced. I guess I'm just curious about when I got my original question: why this list, not not another list? Um, you know, there are lots of books out there with within effect ten point plans for how civilization renews itself, um, and many of them are a little bit open ended, but they're still like that. And in all cases, I have two main qualms. One is there's something about the planning nature of it that troubles me. It's, it's that it's insufficiently receptive to what might come, insufficiently curious about almost, you know, that joke about um, man, man plans, God laughs, you know, that sort of thing. It's, it's as if like, we, as if we could figure it out when there's so much that's beyond our control. Um, but there's also this issue of underlying, per, underlying value, a kind of that was sort of meta, meta ethics in a way. It's sort of thinking about what what are the real ultimate values that are driving the endeavor. So I don't doubt that the six points you raise could spin us towards, or what would the right metaphor be? It would move us towards, or somehow tumble. Yeah, tumble towards. Yeah, something like that. Playfully fall down the hill towards whatever. Um, basically. I agree that could be the case, but I'm curious in order to make decisions, do we or do we not need some kind of underlying commitment to certain core virtues or processes of understanding virtues or, you know, whatever that is, is there not yeah. someone underlying aspect or, or am I looking for something that just isn't there? No, no. So no, can uh, I say, can I just make, say yeah. one, one thing when you're talking uh, what I'm hearing Jonathan say maybe is that we need a metaphysical system as well as just this idea of, of changing stuff like like a religion or something, you know? A religion is a metaphysical system that sort of keeps the society together. And um, is that fair, Jonathan? Thanks, thanks, Andrew. Just a quick spin on that before Bonnie comes in. Um, yes, metaphysics. I know Bonnie's written about that, so it's an interesting chance for her to go into that. It's not just metaphysics, though. So it is something about ultimate commitments. Uh, I suppose it's also about the, the rhetorical function of the plan. There's something about making sense to people of why we should do X and not Y by appealing to Z. Um, so meaning, right? Meaning. What's the meaning well, of what well, we're doing? Well, maybe, yeah. Andrew. But the point is you huh. say meaning. Someone else says happiness. Someone else says justice. Someone else says diversity. Someone else says health. And mm. I want to know how you're going to deal with that. Or are you just going to say, everyone's welcome. We can do it together. Uh, bring all your values with you. Like, how do we solve that conundrum? Yeah. How do we solve that conundrum in a lazy Taoist way, maybe? <laughs> maybe, maybe. Let's hear it. <laughs> yeah. Yes, the thing is designed to solve itself. So I, I just step back. No, that's kind of a joke. Okay, so here are different ways to look at it. Um, one is it's informed by a lot of key features of my work, right? Release complexity, self-organization. It's it's designed so if people buy in, then you really have a lot of experiments going on. It's not a top-down thing. This notion of releasing complexity, this notion of the different type of meta move it is, and the fact that it like literally almost killed me to write it. Like, what do you want to say? Right. And so maybe it's only authentic to one person, that but all these things depend upon timing, you know, like, is there a sufficient 
the, is this speaking to other people what they can't get out of themselves, you know? And I had a community call the other day and people like, there's a lot of people close to saying certain similar things, but they don't say it in public because it seems like retro romanticism. You asked that question and it has all these, maybe they're not, I get away with it because I've been like writing complex metaphysics. So people think, well, she must be smart. I mean, basically, that's one of the reasons why people like Zach and I get away for, with saying these things, right. because we've had to prove that, yes, all of that, and yet, there's something else, right? So that's part of it. And, and, and the question is, like, Wilbur, I mean, Wilbur's work was great, but it was also timely. He didn't say anything that wasn't said in little places elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. he represents. But I believe he spoke. He went through the same process, and I don't think, I don't know if this is going to be a big deal or not. But that it's one of those things for me. That's one thing. But the other thing you're talking about is yes, because you're so astute. <laughs> there are underneath it. You could say, what are the? As I said in my the spirituality we need. What are the ontological, epistemological, and metaphysical and axiological commitments that we need today? Right. And I think you can see from that short video I did that that is what underlies this. But of course, that's all I can say. So that's why I know there's also this deeper holism. It's right. me trying to come to terms with who am I at this time in history as a person, given all the work I've done. and. Yep. Can that be helpful? This is interesting to me. Like, it seems like <laughs> rather than a bunch of commandments, like uh, uh, that, that you're talking about commitments that we should make that are based at, in this moment of time. Um, is, is, is that, is that, uh, am I understanding you? Uh, which, which is, it, that's a different thing than saying we should always, you know, thou shalt not kill or, uh, um, you know, it's, it's more like, okay, Right now, we're not going to build a, a thing to go to the moon, right? That's inappropriate in this time. Maybe the whole discussion about going to Mars feels to me kind of inappropriate when wildfires are burning in, mm. you know, in Australia. Uh, so, uh, so yeah. So, what are what are those? Um, what do you think? Yeah. Those, I mean, the first those? thing is to realize you have them, and then you say, "Well, are these good." Are these actually a lot of people have commitments that are not in the direction of the values they espouse, mm -hmm. and that's why they never get anything done. Mm -hmm. So um, I have I have watched the video Bonita alluded to. I've also seen the text because I edited well very lightly edited it because it was great as it was, um, which will go online shortly actually. Um, but what she's alluding to is a is a, um, a series by Bruce Alderman about the spirituality of, the, of tomorrow or, or the one we need today, or which is effectively the same thing in some ways. Um, and it was a particularly cogent piece where Bonnie does kind of lay out her metaphysics of choice. Mm -hmm. And they include commitments to axiology, which is roughly the sort of structure of value or underlying premises of value and goodness and so forth. Um, epistemology, which is about how do we know and how should we know Ontology, roughly, what is real? What is the world made of? And what do we know to be real? Uh, what is there? Um, and then um, also your fourth the one. Process metaphysics. Process metaphysics, which in some ways is, a, is what I wanted to get to, yeah. So the thing about a process metaphysics that's very relevant in regards to my, my question is that it's inherently somewhat um, 
provisional, right? It's inherently, there's a, you know. Non-Kantian. Right, Un-Kantian, right. Un-Kantian, yeah. Right, Un-Kantian. It's say, creative. Like, so if you're committed to a process metaphysics, then, it, then giving any given list is a way of saying, this is where we are in the process at the moment. Right? The list is a way of the process unfolding and speaking. Uh, and you, in, a, in, a, in answer to the question of why these points and not others, you can give more or less good cartographical references, saying, well, I actually touched all the four quadrants of Wilbur's map, and this is a little bit aperspectival in Gebser's theory, and it's this and that. You can do that, and your, your list may look more or less credible as a result. I suppose... The thing I'm trying to get to is, is that enough? Is that as much as we can do? And if so, let's just get on with it. Or is it more, is it, is it that there's another way of doing this such that you uh, bring together the best and the, the brightest, as it were, bring in all the lists, have you, everyone has their 10-point plan and there's, t- there's a thousand of them, and then you whittle that down to one 10-point plan at the end because that's the one that survived. That doesn't seem right. That seems bogus, right? And, and, and I'm wondering, the reason it seems bogus is something about uh, the nature of, of, in your model, knowing, valuing, being, and what upholds all of that is, is radically perspectival. In other words, it's, it depends upon the context and the person. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not true for everyone and always, necessarily. And therefore, all you can do is say, this is what I think we should do next, given our best available knowledge and judgment. Um, and if that's the case, you know, good luck. Like that's, maybe, that's, maybe that's all there is. Yeah, and I also try to highlight um, what's, what's, what's possible. Um, okay, there's a lot going on. Um, it's always like playing a, a fairly extraordinarily rich chess game with Jonathan. Yeah. Because every new move is so many more possibilities, you know, although it doesn't have this competitive feel to it. Um, so well, can, I, I, can I maybe yeah. throw in Wait. one little thing? When, I, when you're talking about process philosophy, uh, uh, it seems to be a, a kind of a creative process of unknowing and then when and then the and then there is also maybe the need for metaphysical certainty of some kinds on the other side right like don't do any harm right that might be a kind of a universal kantian category so i'm almost feeling like i'm almost feeling these the two worlds let's say a buddhistic world or eastern world or taoist world and a and a and and a and a kantian christian world view being being sort of compared to each other. Um, yeah, and I want to say to all my Taoist friends, I mean, I call myself a Taoist, but I've obviously upgraded what that I think that means to me. I mean, some Taoists are very, you know, there, there's all kinds of Taoists, but um, a lot of uh, commonalities. Um, so, but, but what I think is interesting, I think any list would be fine. Um, it doesn't matter, you know, maybe exactly how you do the steps, but d- these features that it releases complexity, doesn't use the med- you know, metasynthetic mind, that it, um, it arises from, you know, s- some deep inner sen- sensing, and, and, and that means you're go- it's going to be backed by these other commitments. Mm-hmm. Deep in, 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 inner sensing is you're kind of 
tracking through some kind of uh, set of commitments. So you have to know what those commitments are, if that could be explicated. Also, I try to work, you know, to release complexity. I try to work with things that are already underway. You know, the one that's the most emergent is digital naturalism. Um, I try to also ask the coronavirus, like, what what are you telling us? You know, so that's the the food to farm thing and the way people were working and with making bread. And and like the other day, I saw this uh, guy who generally sells eggs to restaurants had to was was going to have to call his flock. And he went straight to Facebook and they he sold like two months of eggs over Facebook. This is the move. Like you just go directly and now the, the system has to breathe food here and then it has to move food here. This is the move. I tried to work with innate intelligence and pro-social impulses of human. Right. I try. So there's certain kinds of things if somebody else can, if they have these deeper touch points, then maybe it could be any other list. Uh, but, but I don't think there's a whole, if you had all those touch points, I don't think there's a whole lot of wiggle room. I wanted to ask you about like hyper objects too. You mentioned the word hyper object and it seems, I don't know if I understand what that means exactly. Uh, uh, maybe people could benefit from understanding that, but I wonder if, uh, removing the hyper object to have a more direct relationship with, with the world is, is, is a bit what you're talking about. Does that? Um, I can just briefly speak to that. I know you were asking Bonnie, but uh, there was a reason I wanted to come in, which was that I think this is one of the, the more exciting features of Bonita's thought, because I spend a lot of time with people who speak about the collapse of civilization uh, and the designing of a new one. Uh, you know, game B is, is, is a complex contested mm-hmm. notion, but a lot of people in that world do think in terms of something like a transcendental design in which you think it all through and map out what this world will be like with different underlying principles, different motivations, different incentive structures, different technologies, different feedback loops, and so it goes on. Um, and that, whenever I hear those things, they don't feel altogether real. And it's not mm. because I don't think we need that kind of thinking. It's because there's something about the getting from here to there that is sort of ignored, as if somehow the process of getting from A to B was not itself part of the story, rather than just what's A and what's B. And so this idea of working with what's already there and sort of building... Very, very important, yeah. Yeah, it's very important. And so when Bonita asks, it's just worth noticing, you know, what is the coronavirus saying to us? it's, it's a very interesting way of posing the question. Um, I feel it to be profoundly ethical, but not moralistic. Like we're looking at the complex situation. We're not, we're not imposing a sort, sort of moralistic um, map of, uh, or, or, or even let's say uh, trying to engineer this, you know, this utopian uh, society. We're, we're trying to really work with the forces that are moving through us and, and our communities and, and, uh, and whatever happens to appear, which might be coronavirus right now yeah no i i I think that's right um i want to hear what bonnie wants to say about hyper objects but i also have something to add i only feel in the last few days i've really made my peace with hyper objects in a certain sense so um yeah so um this is work i've been doing for a long time as you know jonathan and that is um i've for a long time believed 
that the complexity in human consciousness as measured by hierarchical developmental stage theory is a product of adapting to an information economy in a capitalist society. Now, actually, the early Taoists um, talked about this in terms of ethics. They said, you know, they'll have pr their principles. Don't touch your, neighbor, your, your brother's wife. And then they'll say, well, what if she falls in the water? And they, they, then they have context. But they, when they argued with the Moists, they said, you don't want to have more and more complex rules because then you'll only have, you'll have to pay a few people. You won't know what they're talking about. And the average person cannot make a moral decision. So they predicted that the, the way complex thinking works in the moral sphere is highly problematic. Um, so um, now we're not, this is not about that, but, but what I would say is that here's the challenge to smart people today. The challenge is not to design double and triple loop systems. It's to design single loop feedback systems that work. They're inherently inclusive of everyone, in including young people. And that's what I'm doing. Everyone knows how to use currency. This move to making systems more and more and more complex is inherently a rivalrous move in the capitalist information economy. Now, you don't have to buy into that. It's highly provocative. I happen to believe it, and some people are starting to also come around to it. Um, Roy Bashkar, for example, this was his critique of the tax, Wilbur's taxonomy. So that's that. So this moving and hyper objects is, is that move, just taking things and making them more and more complex in a hierarchical complexity. But I, I, Bonnie, can I come in there? Because two things there. One is um, I'd love to hear more about what what exactly you mean there. This, you seem to be saying that the develop the the impulse to understand cognitive complexity through developmental models is somehow beholden to the capital informational infrastructure um, and therefore not exactly beholden but it's sort of shaped by it and serves it in a certain sense. So I would put it a little cleaner than that. Developmental stage models correctly reflect what's happening but that's not because our mind is like that that's because it's a mind that's developed in a right. rival risk okay yeah so they're there it's called the empirical fallacy Right. Okay. They got, got evidence that that's happening, but they act as if this is a deep structure of the mind. I see. Okay. Brilliant. So it's not. So in some ways, you could say it's epistemology claiming to be ontology, something like that. Yes. Right. Okay. Got it. Right. So the next question was about hyper objects, because only recently do I feel I read Timothy Morton's um, "Being Ecological" some time ago. Uh, I've spoken to a few of my trusted intellectual friends about the nature of hyper objects. And it took me a while. I, like you, originally saw this as primarily a hyper-abstract way of framing things, almost putting it beyond the reach of under cognitive understanding. But there's a more generous way to view Morton, and I got to this through Gene Johnson and um, his work on Gebser, but also more generally thinking about what Zach's been saying about, he keeps saying that the intellectual function is, is, is sort of defeated by the hyper-objects. And by that he means... We can't, the pandemic at scale is beyond any single mind to understand. Climate change at scale is beyond any single mind. Even the notions of inequality or democracy or 
Yeah, these and are all examples of hyperobjects. Yeah. I'm and just saying that so, for the people. So they tend to have this function of being simultaneously present and absent. So souls sort of diffuse in their influence and reference, and yet simultaneously present and real, such that we refer to them and they're part of our experience, but we can't pin them down. They're not tangible. Um, now, the more generous way of viewing hyperobjects comes about through a sort of going beyond perspectival thinking. So going beyond the lists, going beyond the conceptual categories, going beyond the taxonomies and the blueprints uh, and the game theor theoretic understandings and saying, no, just ground it in your own experience. Um, the hyperobjects a way of saying You've, that function has limitations. It's not saying here is the apotheosis of the intellect. It's saying the intellect must surrender. That's why we have archetypes and symbols and stuff too, right? So it's just sort of an uber archetype, a big, big... Well, yeah, as I understand it, and this is why it's exciting, and Bonnie can correct me on this, but as I understand it, one of the reasons people like Gebster are exciting is precisely because those ways of thinking, the more magic, mythic kind of perspectives, are coming back. People are reaching for them and, and, and feeling more and more attuned to them. And that's partly because the more mental structures that we've been living with predominantly for the last decades and centuries hmm. are, are losing their preeminence. They're still there. We still need them. You don't throw your intellect out uh, lightly. You, you sort of need it. But there are other things going on. One of the things that's going on is this kind of aperspectival view, which is, a way, which is not a way of saying you don't take perspective or you don't have concepts, but it's sort of recognizing that you can experience the whole thing and not be able to explain it conceptually. Mm -hmm. um, and that's partly what's going on with, with the COVID-19 crisis, the pandemic, but also with bigger issues like climate change, when people speak about the meta-crisis, what they're alluding to is the ineffable wholeness of our existential predicament expressed in systemic terms that are beyond my understanding. And that's where hyperobjects are a bit more like your friend. You know, they're a bit more like, okay, I see why I can't get that. It's a hyperobject. And that's okay because there's a limit to what I can understand because I'm a single human being with epistemic limitations. Mm -hmm. And that's how I see it. But. So it's a necessary kind of short form for communication between pe between people to understand things that are that are beyond our understanding. Am well, I under I'll let Bonnie come in now. I mean, I yeah. I, I can. Read I, I agree with you. I think that um, just like all these new waves of understanding, um, they they morph and they get popularized. And I, I'm mostly critiquing the popularized version. When I teach Timothy Morton, I always teach hyperobjects in conjunction to his other book, which I can't remember what the title of it is, but uh, the subtitle is, is something about, you know, um, really having relationships with the non-moving world. It's a type of neo-animism. And I think the two have to go hand in hand. And the second version is, is usually much more foreign to people um, uh, that objects um, are, are part, you can participate with objects. They're, they're non-trivial. Uh, I like to say, for example, that coffee moves a billion people every morning. And I don't mean it in a trivial way. Um, this is if you investigate, um, you, you know, what catalyzes your actions. In, in, many, in many cases, it's they're, they're what we would call objects. So 
this those two pieces have to come together for me in understanding Timothy Morton. But yes, um, if you look at the different ways to understand hyperobjects, I, I agree with you. Um, uh, yeah. So um, maybe you know this could that could be a whole. <laughs> well, well, what's interesting about it vis-a-vis your list? Um, list of six things we should sort of do is that they're, they're somewhere straddled between the perspectival and the aperspectival. They're sort of, it's a bridge from one to the other. It's like you want, where you want to get to are these tacit understandings based on embeddedness in Perfect. the relationship, right? Mm. But to get there, you need to build this sort of quasi-conceptual bridge that has practice built into it so that we don't, we know where we're going to some extent. Yeah, and it has to have, you know, it has to be anchored in the real dynamics of the real world. Like, is it possible to have a currency like that? Is it possible to track a food chain? You know, these things um, are possible. What I wanted to ask you, Bonnie, about that, if it's okay with Andrew, is that, um, you know, the the, the other critique that could come, one is the sort of, this is just eco-romanticism. The other critique that I didn't mention that I could now is how much you're assuming about human goodwill. Um, how much we're assuming that our better natures are latent, waiting to come out and just need the right systems and structures to elicit them. And to what extent are we just um, morally compromised and self-interested? And will, there will always be a critical mass of people in any given group who will seek to subvert the commons and subvert patterns of collaboration for their own selfish advantage. Um, I know that people like... Daniel Schmachtenberger is, is very clear that this is one of the main problems where he doesn't really trust in anything within our current competitive system is that as long as those people are there, they will ultimately destroy things for everyone. Um, and so I suppose I'm just curious to know where you are with that because you sometimes speak as though there is this better nature that's universal, but I'm just not sure if that's the case. Um, I would say that... You have to have an optimistic, um, you have to be able to imagine optimistically, but not that people are good. <laughs> um, so for example, one of, the, one, of the, one of the hopes in something like this is, um, um, oh, I wanted to just bring in, you know, when, when we were talking about working with what we have, you know, that's a big thing in Dave Snowden's work of exaptation, right? And I think that we should uh, also work with what we have in terms of people. People are good and people are not so good or whatever. Um, what I see, though, however, is the biggest, the reality of the moral quandary we have as people now is not that we're not good intentioned. It's that there's good intentions um, funneled through perverse incentives. And um, and I think everything, like people are like, can't that currency be gamed? I'm like, yeah, sure, any currency can be gamed, but there's, there's, a, it can, it, there's a lot less it can do. So, you know, you can't invest in, you can't stockpile it, you can't. So um, you want a lot of little transgressions. This is one of the problems with Bitcoin. It's that I think they're working on it with hollow chain successfully because hollow chain has different levels of permissions. So close circles can be 
a lot more wiggle room. But <clears throat> a lot of big <clears throat> Bitcoin, BitChain, uh, blockchain technology imagines a transgressless society, right. which is like a dead society, you know, I mean, our values and our ways of imagining ourselves evolve and they always come online, they emerge as deviant forms. So this is something to think about um, in, in terms of going forward. And um, there's also um, something about, you, you know, if, if you start to look at how nature is composed itself, right? Versus the systems that we make. We want to always make systems that, you know, can't be gained or systems that whatever, retreat or withdrawal. Um, but um, things like um, cheating all, and uh, parasitism, all these things are highly evolutionary in nature. <clears throat> and so um, that's again, you know, a lot, a lot of this conversation, and and it's hard for me too. So I'm not saying, uh, not just throwing stones here. A lot of this conversation is from the impression that the system is big, and you know, system number one, the big. We we can hardly use that word and not think of nature as a system. It's so distributed. We don't even. It's not even a system because it's so open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so part of this work, if people wanted to work on this uh, uh, approach, is helping each other even understand what we mean when we talk about that kind of system. Yeah. Uh, because it's not bounded in, <clears throat> and, um, you know, so uh, if I have a really uh, good uh, series of articles in Medium, <laughs> That sounded self-promotional, but it, it goes through like the different levels of system thinking, zero level, which is this participation right, right. all the way. And it shows all the moves that are made by the mind to increase the complexity of those systems. And so what you can do with that, uh, that analysis is systematically work back. So, for example, at a certain level of systems thinking, you deanimate some part of the system. Right. And there's a there's there's a liability to that. Mm -hmm. So um, you know, I think that Nora Bateson, you people in our community, uh, Dave Snowden, we're all trying to figure out the language and uh, what is it to talk about this kind of um, process or dynamics that doesn't you know. So that's kind of a challenge. You said uh, deanimating the system, which I thought was kind of interesting because in, in these theoretical two worlds, um, the problem with the, the present world is there's a lot of dead structures, right? That need to be kind of deanimated, that need to kind of fall apart before more positive structures um, can emerge. Yeah, what I meant by that is like the, the original sin of the ecological management um, movement. We can manage the ecosystem so that we are active mm. and the, the ecosystem's deanimated. And there is this is one of the, the this is original sin of, of holi, what I call holistic systems thinking is you it's kind of control, right? It's it's a mania for controlling whatever situation. It could it could come from from good intentions, but you noticed mm. you say you know I'm subject, you're object to that, and whenever you do that. 
then the system is going to come back to bite you, right? Or in management systems, management thinking, management, different theories of management show how you can, um, uh, they, they envision the workers as being agents, but then the manager can step outside and see it as a human system and act on it. Mm-hmm. Right. So now I have a privileged position from which I can act on the system. Mm-hmm. Well, this is, this is, not true in highly con- it's not true of nature it's not true of the coronavirus this is exactly what the model mental model is of coronavirus that we can act on something that's not true you have to take a different orientation and understanding what the orientation is is really good work um but that's just one there's nine i think different uh features of systems thinking that can move you to uh, this this other way of uh, yeah being with complexity. I mean, so yeah, that, that begs the question is like how do we act? Um, um, and and with we, what is our agency and all all of these things and 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 part of that is I guess activity and part of that is like you're the Taoist king and you're just facing south and that's how you rule your kingdom uh, not by by uh, messing with um, whatever's going on. Sorry, Jonathan, you wanted to... to well, just, just to sort of echo, uh, I haven't read Bonnie's piece on, it sounds fascinating on different ways of understanding systems thinking, but I, I, I am aware of the fact that there's a lot of talk of changing the system, uh, a lot of talk of systems change, um, and not that much reflection on what we mean precisely by system, nor the scales that that applies to, micro, macro, and miso, and everything else in between. And then the different kinds of systems such that, you know, uh, the sort of self-organizing system that is the mind uh, is very, very different from the, the kind of system that is the virus. And uh, again, I like what you're saying. It Maybe it isn't even a system. Maybe, well, just, maybe the ecosystem is not a system. Maybe, well, you know, but we, we're so used to thinking in those terms, but they're I mean, not ex- ex- exactly I think correct. What I'm, I think what I'm, I'm, I'm sort of maybe in a sense pulling my punches a bit, I just feel uh, systems, systems thinking, unless it's given the kind of texture that Juanita's pointing to, risk being hollow. It risks being a kind of picking something out of the social surround to sound clever uh, to sound insightful, but actual to really feel systems and to recognize one's participation in them is an altogether more more exacting, challenging task. Because, as Bonnie says, we are we have multiple systems inside of us. There is a sense in which we are one system ourselves, but then we're embedded in many others. So to even speak of systems is to bring into the room like thousands of layers of complexity. Um, and okay, there's no point in getting lost in that. You need to get back to, and therefore, uh, but just that we maybe need to refine our conception of when we say system, I mean X, just as when we say, the moment when we say, when I say capitalism, I mean this version of it, or when I say democracy, I mean this, I mean the liberal democracy, you know, uh, liberal democratic yeah. version. likewise with system, uh, changing the system, I've often felt was a bit, um, a bit hollow as an also it has a kind of ingratitude for 
um, you know, we've yeah. got to this point in culture and, and we've been struggling with it. And if you just want to change the system, there's this deep, deep history that the system is, 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 um, comes from. Right. Um, and you know, and people, people have this tendency to want to wipe everything away in this sort of blank slate. That's, that's, I think the hard kind of, of uh, I think that, problem, that's, that's the point problem. we're returning to. And there's a good reason for that. And that's what is, is uniquely Bonitas in some ways. Um, for me, at least, uh, because I am also wrestling with that being in communities where the language is very much of things have to die before they can be reborn. Um, and we need to tear down capitalism and we need to, and democracy is finished and, and none of this quite rings true, and yet it doesn't ring wholly false either. There is a sense in which the, the interlocking pressures of multiple break, break, systemic breakdowns and their relationship does mean we're encountering something like existential risks, if not catastrophic risks. Um, and I think that's kind of right. But when it comes to what to do, we don't have the option of starting from ground zero. Like it's just not there. What we have instead is our next move in chess terms. You know, the position mm -hmm. is what the position is. You, the pieces are what the pieces are. Mm -hmm. You can play better or worse, but it's your move. You know, that's how I see it. Um, and, and yeah, to make a good move, you need to think ahead, certainly. And you need to learn from what you've done wrong in the past, right? But don't think you can just wipe the pieces away and start again. You know, you, it's not, not how life is. Mm. Yeah, and I think that uh, I love, there's a lot you just said there. So I'm going to pick out some gems. Um, so you said the mind is a self-organizing adaptive, you know, self-organizing system. Now the mind has complex feed loops, right? So that some, some areas, when they get excited, inhibit other areas. And those maybe inhibit other areas. So when they inhibit this, you know, it's very complex. And so the moves we make, or the thoughts we have are threshold events. Like uh, literally, if I'm like, should I go to the store or not? Both those are in me, sub-threshold at the same time until one happens. And the reason why this is adaptive is the same reason why when you're receiving a serve, even moving in the wrong direction is better than standing still, right? right. So. Right. So now if you look at coronavirus and we say, what is the self, what is the self-organizing collective intelligence of coronavirus? Well, what you would want to see is a lot of things going on all the time. The information ecology rich with alternatives until you have a threshold event. And duh, that's what we have. So now all of a sudden, instead of like having a sense-making breakdown, you know, the freaking war on sense-making, you actually see the system is doing what it needs to do in complex environments. Now there's too much need for people to want one answer. And this is where you destroy the self. So you can start to see, I call it, there's a term I use, still hunting, where you just, you just all the information ecology, I don't know what to make of it, but it's changing the way, I, I, I no longer feel like I'm lost. Like it's this need to think, well, what is the answer? And then, if this, then that, is more actually more confusing than watching the self-organized collective intelligence. And we need to make that information cloudy more robust. But when that when that New York doctor, you know, New York knew that it was coming their way, and when he got out and said, "Look, I'm a pulmonary uh, a surgeon or whatever, a respiratory expert," 
And he says, I've never seen something like this before. This is not pneumonia. And he came on the YouTube. And then scientists looked at all these different studies and all these different ways of experimenting with respirators versus ventilators. This was in real time, and this has never happened before. The mm -hmm. professional career of the doctor would have been at risk and all this stuff. Yeah. So the same uh -huh. thing that you can look at as a breakdown in sense-making, I see as emergent, uh, uh, emergent ways of working with complexity at that, at that level. And you want to see these a lot of sub-thresholds experiments. I think Sweden is marvelous for doing their own experiment. You know, geopolitically, they're, they're able to get away with it. But um, you can start to see, and then if you can start to see that you can, it's already happening, let's do more of this and less of that. It's not entirely new. Hmm. But actually, I feel quite good about 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 this as a, as a kind of, um, as a kind of, sort of conclusion because it, it, it makes me feel uh, less uh, gloomy about humanity in terms of, you know, it's self-organizing uh, potential. Do you have something you want to um, add to that, Jonathan, what, what Bonita said? Um, well, just, just to sort of echo it really, um, I suppose that I would add. I would add just this that it it very much encapsulates how I'm what I'm experiencing in in my current role, which involves working with a lot of people who are thinking at this level of complexity at a time when people are desperate for answers. Um, and there's also, I think, a certain fetishization of different types of critique, uh, which I'm. A little bit guilty of myself sometimes. Mm. Um, the desire to solve a problem, the desire to see civilization-wide phenomena as if they were essentially problems that could be solved, rather than a kind of predicament or pickle that we're all caught up in together, um, and that we have to experience more deeply somehow, uh, and then find felicitous action, find a way of doing something meaningful and real and useful. Um, but in a way that is not anti-intellectual, in a way that doesn't say, oh, you and your funny ideas, you know, I'm going to go be practical and do something. No, these two things are needed together. We've never needed praxis more. And naive positivity, we don't need either. In some ways, the predicament is objectively, well, it's subjectively dark, but objectively quite precarious, you could say. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, the hope arises from the action. It's not that you have the hope and then you act. It's that you find something meaningful to do, begin doing it, and you find what's mobilized then is all sorts of interesting ideas about what to do next. Um, and I think in that sense, Bonita's really helped with this essay series because it gives you an idea of, here's some things we can build, what's stopping us. And yeah, there are qualms, and yes, there are questions about how and when and who, but the key thing is to begin something where you have confidence that this is a beneficial mm -hmm. move yeah. uh, and not to wait for the big master plan. Yeah. Uh, I, I love the fact that there's, it's a kind of, uh, it's a kind of not naive optimism in the sense is just recognizing the resources that we have that are already there. Um, it's an authentic positivity. I have a colleague, Shan Ferguson, who uh -huh. came up with this term. I find it very useful. It's the positivity on the other side of the analysis of negativity. You know, 
-hmm. It's like what you do when you face up to the problem but still have to act. Uh, it's not everything's going to be okay. It's not everything is okay. It's yeah. things are difficult. Now what do we do? Yeah. And like in wartime or something, there, the, even even in, in whatever the situation is, it can be very, very dark uh, and, and very, very terrible. There's still, there's still, there's still some sparkling or of, 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 of uh, creativity happening at the same time. And, and so there's this double, there's this double-edged sword or double, double, two worlds again that are, that are happening simultaneously, I think right now, which, which Bonita expresses very well in her, um, in her vision. We don't have to answer it now, but I mean, one of the things I'm left with is I'm never quite sure what we should want uh, at, a, at, a, at a civilization-wide level. You know, it's just not my, if someone asked me to sketch utopia, I would really struggle, you know, I, there's something, and I say struggle, a little bit ironic I say that, because in some ways for me, the struggle that we face now is quite close to how I want to live. You know, it's like having these big conundrums to wrestle with and try and act on is, is in its own way beautiful. Now, it's not to say I wouldn't want things to be more peaceful. I don't want people to be tortured or starved. I don't want delusional uh, forms of wealth that lead to others being destroyed through poverty. I don't want ecological suicide. You know, there are th clear things that we can do that anyone could, the same person could agree on. But beyond that, painting a picture of how you want the ultimate world to be, that's beyond me. I just don't, I can't quite conceive of a world of optimal conflict in that way. Uh, I, I don't know if others can, I'm curious about that. But I think what I can relate to and where Bonita is really helping is thinking about next steps. Mm -hmm. Do you have anything that you would like to close off with, Bonita? Anything that's hanging around in the conversation that you would like to kind of perhaps conclude? I mean, I just really then? appreciate that reflecting back um, <clears throat> what Jonathan said. And, you know, I would just say it in a different way, you know, um, how the world is, is not up to us, mm. but how we act in the world we have is, is so. Mm. 